Howdy, howdy, and welcome to my bloody Judy with your final forgets, myself, Zachary Patton Garcia. And Ian Carlos Crawford, who's <laughs> losing his voice. <laughs> Fuck, that sounded terrible. That didn't sound like nothing at all. I just heard... <laughs> Should I do that again? <laughs> <laughs> You're fine. No, I think I think it'll be fun. <laughs> um, and today our opening chills are from Midnight Mass. I'm Peaches Christ. And I'm Michael Verratti. Hello. It's so good to have you both here. Um, so what we're doing is we are, for Scream's 25th anniversary, we are breaking the movie into three parts. And our first part is on... Uh, Casey Becker's opening chill. And that's what we're here to discuss today. Um, Michael, I, I'm i very cheered. Michael always brings all the fun facts. Michael's been on all of the podcasts I, I do and you always have like the best behind the scenes facts. I wanted to address one right away. All I right. wanted to see what, if you boys thought, was Drew Barrymore bullshitting Michelle Pfeiffer when she said the thing about the wig? Okay, so for background, <laughs> uh, I anyway, got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for those who don't know what Ian is referring to, recently on the Drew Barrymore show, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer was on, and she referenced the fact that the hairstyle that she utilized in the opening of Scream was inspired by the look that uh, Michelle Pfeiffer had, I believe, in Scarface. And so they had this whole big like kind of moment where like you inspire me and I inspire you. Uh, and I don't know that that's not true. Cause like, you know, obviously this whole movie is a one big reference. It's a referential mm -hmm. piece of work. Uh, I think, you know, Drew Barrymore grew up in cinema. So I wouldn't shock me if she pulled on other movies for reference and Wes Craven knows his shit. But the only thing that makes me kind of curious is that the hair that Casey Becker has in the opening of Scream also matches Tina's hair from A Nightmare on Elm Street. And Wes has even suggested in the past that that was on purpose to reference his own film. And it, it can't be both Amanda Wiss and Michelle Pfeiffer. Or can it? I don't know. It could be. Could yeah, why not? Well <laughs> I, I see Drew Barrymore like bringing a lot of her own sort of ideas into every role that she kind of does. So I could definitely see her having brought something from Hollywood, especially growing up in it, like you said. Um, but also Wes Craven throws in Easter eggs in everything, right? Say It might be one of those situations where they both thought it came from wherever it came from. And maybe they never, you know, or... It doesn't, it doesn't always kind of matter in a way because it's sort of like, I choose to think that probably the stronger argument is that it's Amanda Wiss or Tina from uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street because that just makes so much sense. It's a yeah. Wes Craven, you totally meta movie. He He's completely, you know, commenting on iconic horror movies. It's actually in the dialogue from that scene. Like why wouldn't her hairstyle, which is exactly Tina's hairstyle, that just makes total sense. Also, He's making a movie where, again, I would argue the best kill in the movie is the first one. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's the same thing with the Amanda Wiss kill, right? Like that, A Nightmare on Elm Street, her being dragged around the ceiling, you know, in that movie uh, is just unreal. It's unforgettable. It's it's one of the most iconic and brilliant things. And, and then he does it again with Drew Barrymore's character in Scream. So I, I think that's the stronger thing, but on the flip side, actors bring their own ideas to projects you know probably when drew barrymore saw the hairstyle she made a connection with michelle pfeiffer mm. in her brain you know 
And so she just maybe always was thinking about it in that way. Yeah. I Either like that answer. or we could just call Drew Barrymore a liar. We could go with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Slander her all over. I all will not slander the star of Poison <laughs> Ivy on my time. <laughs> Speaking of this opening and like it being so iconic, um, I, I just got done listening to you guys' episode on Texas Chainsaw 2. And I hadn't seen that in so long and I completely forgot that opening of, you know, everybody driving. And that's also so crazy. But this one... As far as like iconic horror openings go, where does this sit with y'all? Oh, well, for me, it is the moment that I got excited about horror again. Yeah. After, you know, being um an you know, an 80s kid, I you know, born in the 70s, right? You know, I was I was in love with horror movies since the early 80s. I'm like the 80s you know, in search of darkness, I'm the poster child as you know, as far as someone who was obsessed with all those movies. And there was this sort of lull, you know, that started to set in towards the end of the 80s, the beginning of the 90s, um, for sure. And then as the 90s progressed, we really were treading on thin ice as far as, you know, quality horror movies and, and getting excited about seeing a movie, you know, in, in the cinema. I mean, I feel like it was sort of like Silence of the Lambs. And then nothing you know yeah. for a while and especially these sort of uh, retreads of slasher movies you know they were bad 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 and boring quite frankly and so i just remember sitting in the theater preparing myself for disappointment and let's face it wes craven genius brilliant auteur but also had made some you know disappointing films you know in, yeah. in, in recent years and um I was preparing myself for disappointment and, you know, had no concept, no clue of what they were about to do. It was opening night, you know, there I am. Drew Barrymore is Drew fucking Barrymore, more famous than anyone else that's listed in the credits of that movie. You know, she's on the poster. It's her face in the background of the poster. I was fucking gobsmacked i was blown away it was chill inducing it was it, uh, it, it took my breath away the whole sequence is fucking brilliant and the fact that that i mean you, even when the when ghostface kind of hesitates before the knife goes in like it's almost like he's looking at her heart in a moment you know there's this sort of the whole slow-mo thing yeah i i could just go on and on but it to, for me it was the it was the kick in the ass that horror needed and it's that moment it's that segment it's the it's the beginning of scream that says to you Wes craven is back horror is back we're, we're we're taking things to a new level no i think peaches is absolutely right because there had been you know for lack of a better term slasher fatigue the the 80s yeah. had sort of run its course we felt like we knew all the beats and this movie was a reaction to that and what's really brilliant about this opening is it meets you head on it, it, mm. it has this phone call you know the phone call is about your being tired of these movies oh they're all the same you know we know this and it it, it in a way is kind of a brilliant short film that removed from the movie is still an amazing horror story and piece of work. And what is exceptional about it is that Scream changed the conversation while also being a reactionary piece of work. Scream does not exist in a vacuum. You have to have that decade of, of you know, franchises 
upon franchises upon franchises and that general pop color pop culture knowledge to even get here so you have to enter the theater with some sort of knowledge of of what's going on and then there's the nuance of that knowledge the idea that this is totally fresh it's it's taking something that you know and flipping it on its head while in of itself being a reference the entire opening sequence of this movie is a reference to the opening sequence of when a stranger calls that's the brilliance of this scene is it's not even original and that's what makes it original so that's you know that's the genius of wes and kevin's script working in tandem here i don't think that like independently it would have worked but you need that veteran horror director who had been through the trenches and literally created the conversation the first time around to help change the conversation and you needed a writer who was on the outside looking in to say okay here's what you did before here's how we need to steer it and that's what that's what this whole opening sets the tone for i think did you see this in the uh, in the theater as well michael I did not see the first one in the okay. theater, actually. I, I saw it, uh, all of them after this. I, mm. I saw it on home video. And I, yeah, yeah. you know, because yeah. for the exact reason that we're talking about, I had been going to the movies. I've always been a horror fan and yeah. I've, I've gone and seen many, but there was a point where you didn't rush to see the latest slasher because yeah. we had been let down a number of times. That makes sense. Uh, we, me, <laughs> Ian has me cover Scream like a million times on this podcast. Um, but every time I we've done you. it, I don't. Yes, and I don't think we have had anybody on who had been in the in a theater seat when this movie came out and like was genuinely surprised by that Drew Barrymore like opening kill right because even you, Ian, you'd heard it at school and it got spoiled for you. So like sitting in that theater, Peaches, like did you what at what point did you realize that Drew Barrymore was going to die and she was going to be that opening kill or did you think maybe she'd get in you know get stuck in the hospital and lead detectives on it like a chase or something? I don't know. What did you think? We, it, okay, so first of all, I guess uh, I am often the oldest person in the room these days. <laughs> the, 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 the veteran, oh, the legendary. Um, legendary. Yeah. Uh, yes, like Jesus Christ, right? Yes. So so I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I was uh, a, a grown adult when I saw um, Scream in the theater. Let's see, what, remind me, was it 96 that it came yeah. out? Okay, yeah. so 96, I moved to San Francisco. I remember where I saw, I saw it at the Alexandria Theater, which is no longer there on Geary Boulevard. I, I remember it very well because I was a young adult who loved horror movies, new to San Francisco. This is an event movie for me, at least. And also I think the trailer and things looked very good, right? Like it was promising. The marketing was fresh. Like it looked exciting. It had, it had good music, you know, in the trailer. Like it felt exciting. It felt like this could be a moment, but no doubt that movie worked the way, you know, Psycho did or something like for me, the gimmick of casting her and marketing her and billing, giving her top billing um, was designed to do exactly what it did to me, which was completely fool me into thinking that she was going to be the final girl, you know? Um, and I just, I just assumed it's Drew fucking Barrymore starring yeah. in a slasher movie. Like how dare they you know kill her right away <laughs> but i loved it and it wasn't and to answer your question uh zach it wasn't until i think that that quick crazy tracking shot up to her hung you know on the tree mm -hmm. 
that I realized like, wow, they fucking did that. They really <laughs> did that. Oh, and it, balls it just, to the wall, it, man. Yeah, it just gives me chills even now just thinking about it. And like Michael says, when a stranger calls, like the fact that they designed the whole opening sequence and Kevin's script is obviously genius. It's a brilliant, fresh script but in the wrong hands with the wrong director, if it had been sloppily done, if it had not been cast the way it was cast, if the marketing, there's these things sometimes where all the elements, because we know to make a movie, you've got literally hundreds, sometimes thousands of people working on one project. So many things can go wrong. It's amazing that any movie ever gets made because of how <laughs> much work it is and how hard it is. But this, this in particular, uh, the costuming, the, the way it was shot, the music, the music when the parents get there and it becomes emotional. It, be, oh, it, give, yeah. it gives it sort of this depth, this sort of wh where you realize like, oh my God, now they're telling us this isn't funny. It's not fun. This is, this is painful. These parents are, uh, which also evokes Halloween, right? The parents coming home and and into this sort of nightmare in suburban America. Um, I love how the mother walks up and she's admiring her flowers, you know, yeah. it's like just that that sort of the, the, the subtle genius of Wes Craven, including I, I know we're, we're I'm going on and on. But like, I, I, I remember specifically when she's looking upside down because she's on the ground and she sees mm -hmm. her parents and the shot is of her parents upside down. I remember going like, oh my God, it's a Wes Craven movie, right? Yeah. Like that's directing, like that's just visionary. Um, anyway, I could go on and on, but yeah, I, I knew in that moment, it's sitting in the theater that this was like a legendary, you know, movie moment. Mm -hmm. Like you just knew it was that exciting yeah. and shocking, truly shocking. Like when was the, probably honestly for a horror movie, the last time I had been shocked in, in, watching a horror movie, I think was probably the finale of Silence of the Lambs because, the, you know, I think that that is maybe arguably um, the the most exciting moment in a horror movie was Buffalo Bill putting on those um, goggles and that that Jodie Foster, you know, um, swooping around in the dark. Like I remember seeing that in the cinema, you know, the, the night the Gulf War broke out, like because we, we were all wondering if the movie theaters would be open and Silence of the Lambs was opening. And I remember watching that movie and going like, wow, I've never seen anything like this before. And it was so scary. It was so terrifying and so amazing. And I don't think I had felt that magic until this opening of Scream. Yeah, you know, it's I, I've said this a bunch on the podcast, but <clears throat> I've said this a bunch on the podcast, but um, I feel like Scream for me, I was always like I would watch horror movies as a kid, but like. I don't know that I would have said that like I love them right like it was like oh yeah whatever me and my friends rented from Blockbuster that was yeah we would look for like a fun horror movie Scream was like definitely the first movie that like got me into horror because of like all of what you just said because also I was a kid so I hadn't seen a lot of the like classic ones um like I had never seen Halloween until like I think I was like 18 I like revisited it on like whatever channel was playing it um so I didn't even get all of the references like I I feel like I think Zach until we recorded I didn't even realize that like him saying go to the Mackenzie's is a reference to Laurie Strode telling yeah. the kids to go down the street. Like shit like that went over my head, but I still was able to like enjoy it. And I do think Peaches, what you said, it's, I say this about Buffy all the time when people try to say, oh, it was, you know, Joss. And like, no, it's everyone. It's all the pieces. And if one of those pieces had been lesser, the movie wouldn't have worked, right? Yeah. Like 
and and I think casting these like I mean and like you know we say a lot of like they were no names but like Courtney Cox had been in Friends already and Nev Campbell was in Party so they were like they were like semi-familiar yeah so they were like semi-familiar and they were like they had the chops right like they they sold those Rose McGowan sells Tatum like Tatum is a very good and I think like Scream does that with like these characters and Drew Barrymore sells that role. You feel bad for this girl. You're not, it's not just like, oh, they're getting killed. And like you said, it's like, it is 10 minutes of her just acting to no one, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you get a shot of her boyfriend, you get a shot of Ghostface running, but like it is her carrying the movie for 10 fucking minutes. But then we get the turn, right? It's more, I mean, it's still like, thrilling horror but like the parents make it a more like this is serious like this is traumatic for this is like a family finding their child dead like that is and I think that's what the movie does really well is like it doesn't take itself too seriously it's almost cartoony in how meta it is but they they like toe the line so well and I think things like this are what do it like right like Drew Barrymore she's like fun and flirty at first and then as she's like building up her tension and it's like fuck um you know it gets more serious and you don't you want her to get away like the that's slow you're right that slow motion scene when he's like running up and stabs her still like gives me the chills because it's like fuck she's so close she almost made it that's really interesting so i'm watching it as someone who subscribed to fangoria magazine you know is all like i got all the references right because i was a seasoned horror nerd I do find it interesting how many young people are obsessed with Scream, you know, and I'm wondering, is, was it your sort of entrance to the world of horror? Like did, because you watched Scream, it excited you, you loved it because it's so meta, then you had to go out and kind of see the stuff that they're talking about, you know, because there is this sort of sense of um, part of enjoying it is getting all the references and understanding yeah. why they why these things are tropes or whatever so did you do you think it like introduced you to you know horror in a way a hundred percent for me that's yeah, amazing hundred percent yeah what about you zach i don't know if this i don't think it was one specific film that introduced me to horror um i kind of reg- i mean I, I couldn't do anything about you know being born in 94 but i you know i regret that i because I don't remember the first time I watched you it. Suck. I don't remember. I, right, <laughs> yes. I don't I remember the first. <laughs> I don't remember the first time I watched Scream or Halloween or anything. They're just they were just in my memory, you know, in my earliest memories. Um, so I think in my mind it was it was like those two movies. I know what you did last time. It was like this group of movies that really did it for me. But this was definitely the one that stuck out because you know when I was getting old enough to like consciously understand that oh I like I like the girl who makes it right or uh, you know this killer is this is why I like this killer. And then I would, you know, save up money and like get, you know, the box sets. Like it was always like these franchises and, and the scream franchise was a big part in that. Don't worry, Peaches. That happens like oh every other episode. Was that, I, I like, cringe, well, I, I cringe saying my own age because Ian like slaps me over the head with it. Right. Oh, so. I was actually, I, you know, I was actually just trying to be funny about the idea that like, you can't help when you're born, but we're just still shaming you for it. You know, right. <laughs> it's just like, whatever. 1994. Um, 
Wow, <laughs> you're trash. Oh my gosh, we said it in the first time we covered it. I was, I think we talked about it. And I was like, eh, I think it was two when this came out. Uh, and you hear me go, please don't awful. say. Yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a whole moment, whole moment. Um, but what really got me is like pretty early on, I figured out that like Kevin Williamson had the idea to do like a treatment for, you know, the, a girl in the house alone, you know, on the, being harassed on the phone and then getting attacked from the Gainesville Ripper. Right. Um, and that fucking scared the shit out of me because true crime has always like been so terrifying to me and anything that kind of relates to true crime and I knew about it scared me like tenfold. Right. So like when a stranger calls, like that was based on like a true crime thing. And that, yeah. like you know, even scared me more than, you know, uh, just the things that are just come out of, you know, somebody's head. Right. Well, I think that something that's important to point out about what you're talking about, this relatability, the real world tether, mm -hmm. that when you're seeing Scream for the first time, especially when it comes out in 1996, or like when you're looking at it through this lens of it's connected to this, this idea of a true crime case. When the movie came out, the costume that Ghostface is wearing was actually just a popular generic. Literally, they say it in the movie, it's a five and dime costume. And it was, this was not mm. made for the movie. And I think that that was a very important thing and, uh, and choice that they made stylistically because it gave it an every town feel. Mm. I owned that mask, you know, I, I, I wore it one Halloween, probably four years before this movie, because I just thought it was cool. And then when the movie came out, I'm like, Oh, I have that. And there was a I remember there being a child of the 80s, where every killer had a definitive look like pinhead looked like, you know, this amazing creature from, you know, beyond and Freddie had the sweater and Jason had the mask. I remember initially thinking, well, if I can buy that, what makes him special, but then that was the fucking point, wasn't it? Yeah. It could be anybody. And that was really, really smart. Now, of course, when you see the goat space costume as branded to high heaven, but it used to be for $3.99 at your local Rite Aid, you could buy that mask. <laughs> that, that actually reminds me of another moment from this opening that's so brilliant because it is full of great stuff. That thing of, uh, which is very De Palma, it's very Hitchcock of, of showing her uh, seeing the killer. And so yeah. then we have this, this this moment where right at the beginning it's like you say it's it's basically a short film it it it, it has a beginning a middle and end it, it's completely contained it's this sort of like uh wild short that opens you up to this whole new world um and the way it connects to scream is so great because yeah the movie starts and it's kind of like okay now we're starting this other movie but you know that this killer is brutal and right. serious and there are no rules you know the star can die the final girl can die and so the 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 whole thing of her seeing the killer at the end of you know that that sequence is also just so great because it's it's such a trope you know it's like and now the killer is revealed to you but then they kill her anyway right it, right. it was it's just brilliant the whole thing is brilliant and i think uh kevin's script uh is an interesting thing to look at as well because in relationship to Wes Craven, you've got a director who was truly visionary. And if you look at um, the movies he made and, and what he contributed to the genre, uh, well, if you look at Night A Nightmare on Elm Street, he did the first one, genius, brilliant. No one had seen anything like it. That mix of fantasy with horror uh, was so smart and obviously inspired. And uh, and he comes back and and, and does part three, which then re-injects enthusiasm into all of the franchises because Dream Warriors was so 
cool. It was so exciting. It was so fun. It, you know, it, it, it mixed comedy with horror and, you know, and, and it treated teenagers with respect and it gave them power. It was, you know, and it was it, it upped the fantasy, right? So that's Wes Craven again, coming back. And then he decides that the only thing left for him to do with the Nightmare franchise is New Nightmare, which is maybe one of the most meta horror movies ever made, you know, because it's the actors playing themselves, you know, fucking Wes Craven playing himself in a movie. So wild. So he's the perfect director for Kevin's genius script in a way. Yeah. And and it goes back to what we were talking about, like that, that brilliant marriage of a group of people, a group of collaborators, including, like Ian said, the cast. The cast for this movie were just killing it. And Wes, again, understands the mix of comedy and horror. Like this is a very entertaining film as far as just the humor, the likability of the characters. Rose McGowan is genius in it. You know, some of her dialogue is so hilarious. Uh, and 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 the freshness of the killers at the end. You know, right. the, the, the fact that the killers spoke to you at the end and, you know, had these conversations, you know, it was, yeah. I know we're only talking about the beginning, but right. I, I think the beginning, like it's ingenuity plays out through the whole film. But I did want to piggyback on something that you said, because I think that especially for piggyback for... me. <laughs> wow. Not on this show, not on this show. Only if it's fair. <laughs> we'll call you back for nudie. <laughs> um, but I, I do think that in the context of discussion of Scream, especially for the younger generation who discovered Wes and horror movies because of this movie and how significant that was for so many people, it is important to note, and, and Peaches spoke about this a little bit when, when she was talking about the impact of Nightmare on Elm Street, but you all, you have to go back to the decade prior. In the 70s, during the height of the drive-in you know, explosion of 42nd Street theater grindhouse movies and drive-in movies, Wes Craven made Last House on the Left, which yes. set a tone for a specific kind of horror movie that then changed the conversation for a solid decade. Subversion, sexual you know, transgressiveness became sort of the mode of horror movies of the 70s. Until we hit Reagan era 80s, we weren't really feeling that anymore. We wanted to go to a new you know, direction. He makes Nightmare on Elm Street and changes the conversation again. And all of a sudden we get these big excessive uh, and, and, you know, pop culture, like Freddie was everywhere. He was an omnipresent character. He hosted music videos. He had albums. He had a hotline. It, it changed the way that we think of how horror movies could be franchised. And then in the 90s, he looks back at two decades of how he has changed the conversation twice and using a meta lens does it again. For any filmmaker to have one thing that changes the zeitgeist is a gift. The fact that this man did it three times over the course of three decades really speaks to, you know, the presence that he brought. And the fact that his kind of final bow in terms of, of, of changing the conversation a third time was to poke fun at everything he had done is, is huge. And it opens with that, that first ring, right? You know, that first ring, she answers the phone and we're immediately in it. We don't get a little setup of her walking home from school or like, you know, going to see what she did that day. We just get that initial just jolt of terror, right? 
Right. And everyone owned that phone. Like, yes, that, that I was had like, that phone, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember, I mean, Peaches, you brought up the trailers and I do, like, I remember those trailers on TV and like, I can specifically remember the scene they kept showing of Drew picking up the phone and screaming and being like, eh, that's the phone I have. <laughs> like, my parents have that phone. <laughs> It's funny watching it now because uh, nobody uses phones that look like that anymore, right? So there is there is this sort of weird part of it that's like, oh, wow, like to me, Scream is a very, you know, modern movie. But rewatching the sequence, things like, I mean, is Jiffy Pop still a thing? You know, that was, that was I, I loved the, the Jiffy Pop, the VHS cassettes that she had rent, rent, uh, rented. Um, that is very true of a certain time period, right? Like that is what teenagers did. And, you know, it was very, very relatable. And now I don't think it's as relatable, um, especially the idea of answering a phone and not knowing who's on the other end of the line, right? Well, like that just it, wouldn't happen today. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like one of one of the dated things that we don't really want to own is wrong numbers are sort of dated. I mean, right. we get we get them periodically here and there, but the idea that this person calls and they don't know who they're calling, like who are you trying to reach? Uh that's so foreign to a world of like I can look at my phone and see potential spam or an area code I don't know or Peach's Christ and I just don't answer. So it's just like <laughs> 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 you bitch. But I, I, I think the other thing that's um nice about the the opening of this film is that the environment it's set in is so well presented as a place of safety and you know like 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 the fact that she's in that home and the door we know that the doors probably haven't been locked right and so as she starts to get more and more afraid i mean the number of doors she actually has to lock is is quite substantial, you know, when you yeah. when you kind of think about it. And that also is such a brilliant filmic device of vulnerability and realizing, I mean, especially when uh, Ghostface uh, actually breaks through the glass, you know, yeah. like it, there's these levels at which they they tell you like, we're going there. This yeah. th this is a spooky crank call. Now it's, it's ratcheted up from a spooky crank call to a home invasion, right? Now it's ratcheted up to a, you know, a chase sequence. Like it really, is a brilliant piece of film as far as escalating tension goes. And I will say this, I'm guessing uh, based on the way it's shot that that whole, and maybe someone knows m more than I do because I don't know much about the behind the scenes on this movie. If we were talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street, I could tell you a lot, but on Scream, I just don't know very much. But my guess is that there was actually a, a more um, visceral kill shot as far as the boyfriend goes because you see so little of what happened right like what what is your take on what happened like how, how did he get killed exactly he gets gutted like a fish right i know That's but like yeah. but, like <laughs> he does but like but like you don't really see it right you kind of like see it peripherally later which i think is really genius right like you kind of like when she's somewhere else you see the body in the background with all this just like I deli, know. deli meat sticking out of his stomach um but do you think they shot something where she saw something being pushed through his stomach i'm i think I, they did right i would I'm think sure so but and yeah. it had just, to get cut because it was like I, I think the mpaa like really went for that shot yeah, because to me, as a uh, as a filmmaker, you know, <laughs> I'm 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 looking at it, going like, oh, I can see that they've you know designed something 
very specific around his stomach, but it doesn't necessarily make sense. Like the way that, that that sequence goes, I feel like there's something missing. I think there's a shot that we are missing of something pushing through his stomach with his guts pouring out, you know, and that, that the MPAA probably cut that. Or maybe I'm remembering some sort of trivia that I, you know, that I've, I've repressed or something because I feel like there's something missing from that sequence. And yet that sequence still feels so violent to me. Yeah. Even though it, it's the Texas chainsaw of it all. Like yeah. I think we're led to believe we see more than we do because her reaction is so strong, right? I think that like, well, also he tells us, I mean, it's, it's just like he tells her what he's gonna do. And then next thing you know, like in sort of the background, you see this bloody mess of a man in a varsity jacket. It's, I don't know. I think that I, for years, did the opposite of what you're saying and like inserted a scene that doesn't exist in my mind well, I may have done that as well, but I'm more speaking to the fact that I've just rewatched this scene right. because I'm coming on this podcast, right? So I'm like <laughs> looking at it maybe with a different, um, you know, more analytical sort of sense of things going, hmm, that seems like an, a horror movie, the way I know horror movies, that we would have seen that kill um, or seen more of it. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't work. It definitely works. It's just because of the way his stomach is set my, my sense is, is that maybe we're missing something. I could be wrong, but I will say that it, it maybe works even better because when that knife hits her heart, it is so shocking, you know, and it's it's followed by that that slow-mo sequence. It's so shocking. And then when it, you know, it he gets that second, you know, um, stab in, you know, to her throat as she's laying down. I mean, it's, it is brutal in a way. And you're right, you don't really see a whole lot. And I think one of the other things about the sequence that makes it completely uh, gut-wrenching, pun intended, um, is when she's trying to say mom, and she sounds like Ian mm. on a podcast. Yeah. You know, she, <laughs> can't, she can't even talk, you know, she, she, she can't get the word out. Like, oh my God, it's amazing. I, I, so I, yes, I agree with all that. And also I do sound like her. Um, I think the, like the moment that I think of as like the biggest, like, like thrill or crazy is like when he's like, she's like, why? And he's like, I want to know who I'm looking at. Like, I think that is like the, like. That's oh, yeah. scarier than anything else in that scene. I have to like, say, yes, it's, it's the most brutal, the most scary that everything, right? Because, like you were saying, they really set up this environment as a, a safe place, right? We see the inside of her house, and it's bright. It looks really nice. It's pretty. Um, outside, we kind of get, you know, it's dark, secluded. You know, they've got fog going. But, like, so there's that contrast between the outside and the inside. The phone call, the person on the other end of that phone, is on the outside, right? That's not anything that's in her world. And the moment that he says that, he's in her world. He's in her house, basically, right? Um and it's fucking like chills every single time. They when they put it back in theaters for like you know uh, back in October, I all of the hairs on my on my arms stood up. What what I think is really great too about what you're saying is is they do give us time to see her house, to see her environment, not just you know her in it, but she walks around. They establish mm -hmm. the layout. We see this very typical American home or what would, would be led by TV and film to believe is a right. typical American home. And um, 
you, it, it sells the idea of safety. Peaches brought up the fact that the doors probably aren't locked and they weren't because we see her rushing to lock it. And then what's really brilliant about the scene as, as also Peaches pointed out, there's a beginning, middle and end. We see the safety of the environment. We see that broken literally when, you know, the, the, you know, body goes through the window, et cetera. But probably to me, most jarring is that the aftermath that like that, those minutes after a tragedy occurs, we know the murder has happened. We're grappling with that, but it's when the mom comes through the Jiffy pops burning, there's the smoke in the house. And now you see the mom like pick up that Jiffy pop and move similarly to how Drew Barrymore moved through the house, but where she was moving in a safe space, everything is chaos. And that is a really, really great way to show. Yes. Sanctity can be broken, you know, and we see, the fucking mom as like there, there's just new levels to the terror she's experiencing also in just like a short amount of time right we let it play yeah. out a little bit more with drew but like with the mom she goes to she she walks in immediately smoke right they do they go they go for the phone right and then there's no phone there um right so that's another layer layer, uh, layer of terror and then they go to the popcorn the popcorn's on there go see the door you know like it's just it keeps adding and adding and adding and it is all of the, these moments that we just saw and seeing those again repeated in the aftermath, like you said, is just jarring. I, I and think of course, them listening to her on the phone. Yes. That, yes. Oh. Yeah. That's like the, or I guess that's not, you know, they see her and then, you know, I guess that's the finale. But yeah. that's just like, you know, the zoom up to the finale, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I really think that, like, I, I think it's one of the more emotional scenes in, like, the series because, like, Right, it's like you are enjoying this horror movie that is like thrilling and you're like, fuck, I want her to get away. But like the parents just really like, and you know, I mean, the, the two of them are really good in their performance and it's quick, but it like, it really sells the like seriousness and like the like bad shit that's going on. Like, they, you know, like they hear their daughter and the mom's like, I can hear her. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's like a really, a really well done beat for a horror movie that like you know people could say it's like yeah just like a teen slasher but like they sell it right like fuck yeah and it you also know? is really cruel also right like the mom is- hears her and that's a confirmation that she's still alive like she's still right. good like we can find her somewhere around here um, right and it's intentionally and- cruel because they they yeah. they they layer it with a, a a a music that i really noticed this time where i was like oh no this knows exactly what it's doing and they're gonna slam you into this super fun movie, but this opening is so brilliant because it's cruel, it's well done, it's dramatic, it's believable, it's truly shocking. And it basically says, you know, don't, you know, don't assume you know what's gonna happen. That, you know, you're you're on a different ride. This isn't this isn't your 80s slasher movie. We've just killed, you know, the leading lady. And you can look at something like Psycho. And the way they marketed Psycho and, and Janet Lee as the star and say how brilliant Hitchcock was. And obviously it worked. He was, yeah. you know, to, to do that shower kill. Um, I, I would say that this kill of Drew Barrymore is like the, the only thing since Psycho that has taken that sort of idea and executed. Everyone's tried. People tried. Right. Obviously, people have tried many, many times. But for me, sitting in a movie theater, thinking I was watching Drew Barrymore starring in a new horror movie directed by Wes Craven, I was gobsmacked. Like, I I keep using that word because I think it's like 
my jaw, you know, I was clutching the pearls, you know, <laughs> I could, I could not believe it. And um, I got so glad that you asked us to talk about this scene because of any scene in any screen movie, um, this is from, to me, the most important and the most yeah. sort of brilliant because it was the game changer, this, this scene. And, you know, and all credit goes to Drew Barrymore as well for, for yeah. ag agreeing to do it, for understanding. I mean, yeah. I, I wonder what the talks were like with her teams. Cause she had I to be. I think it was her uh, idea. I think she oh, got offered right. the lead. It was, you're right. She wanted to do so brilliance to her, yes, right? Yes. You're right. I, you're right. I, I often think like, that's wild that she was like, no, but I want to be like she, this mega star was like, no, that'll be cool. It also like, makes her sound really cool, right? Like, it does. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, I also and there might, there might've been like behind the scenes reality of we're shooting this movie and right. these are the dates and Drew Barrymore goes, I'm only available this one or two days, you know, um, which who cares because right. whatever, you know, but, but, but still they, they had to work it out with her team that she was going to do all this press because she was doing press. They did not talk about her getting killed in the first two minutes. She was doing press as and she, she was the leading forefront. Lady. She was on the brilliant. poster. They yeah. even on the poster have her posing like she's this badass who's about to put on her combat boots yeah. and take down the killer. Yeah. Right. Like she's yeah. even posed completely different than she plays out in the scene. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is also where it is evident that the mainstream film industry does treat and handle and look at horror movies different because I, I can't remember whether it was Ian or Zach who said this, but Drew Barrymore carries these 10 minutes entirely mm. by herself. Yes. And when you consider the magnitude of that and what is required of a performance and of an actor to do that and make it interesting, that is considerable work. And I think that even though, yes, Drew Barrymore is a superstar and Drew Barrymore has been acting since she was a child and is in all of these iconic things, when we kind of look at the pantheon of actresses who like really like put their chops forward, unfortunately, I don't think that like, you know, the, the ivory tower of cinema brings her name up often, but- Hey, if <laughs> how dare you? No, I, I, I would agree with you, Michael, until Grey Gardens, because absolutely, I will, I will. Oh gosh, I could talk all the. We could change this podcast to Grey Gardens. <laughs> but, <right now>. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll just, I'll just say, as a Grey Gardens obsessed fan, obsessed. When I heard that she was playing Little Edie, I was the first to be like, "That fucking makes no sense." Yeah. Drew Barrymore only does Drew Barrymore, like, and I love Drew Barrymore. Don't get me wrong, but I thought it was a terrible decision, and she proved me wrong. Yeah. She well, is Pe an actor. She is, but Peaches, you and I are on the same page here because, really, when you think about what it takes to, to execute this performance, if she yeah. was just yeah, doing true. Drew Barrymore, you're right. It wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have worked. You're right. Like she had to sell. You know, she op she picks up the phone and it's just like playful, almost you know, seductive, giving us. She's a little playing poison. Drew Barrymore. She's playing Drew Barrymore she, smartly. She's doing she's doing it in a way a, a, a manipulative way. You're right. right. And then when she spirals into yeah. fear, it's yeah. exceptional, and yeah. she does it alone because yeah. her boyfriend's outside and it's a man on the phone. She's alone in that You're room right. and she yeah. sells it. This is this is grade A theater. I mean, honestly, it, it's. The short all right, film Michael. of short films. All right, all right. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, around. acting, like, yeah, acting, you're, you're right. Like, it is her alone. And she, she, 
likely wasn't there on set with anybody else. I can't imagine they made her wait while they did the boyfriend shot, right? So right. she didn't have anybody else on set really with her. She wasn't there with anybody. Um, and, and she has to go through this whole scene doing different levels of terror. So it's almost like a 10 scale. And they're telling her, okay, for this moment, do do like a two. For this moment, you're at a 10, right? Um, and... That's why, like, we mean you talk all the time that horror actors in horror are never appreciated the way they should be because it, they really have to go through this whole like fucking field of emotion that you know you you look at a normal like I don't know drama film and like you know is everybody being sad or something like that but like you know horror really does give you that full scope of of every sort of emotion and God in totally, the fucking in a you, fucking 10 to 15 minute scene, she did all of this, right? Yeah. Yeah, and you're completely right that, you know, and it was funny, I'm thinking about, once again, Silence of the Lambs being an exception where Jodie Foster, you know, did did get that sort of recognition, but the twist was they didn't want to call it a horror movie. Mm -hmm. right. So, you know what I mean? Like, so it's like, well, fuck you. It's like somehow horror has that sort of um, a dirty sort of sense to it. It's like one level um, above pornography or something, you know, because um, of, you know, whatever violence or, you know, this or that. But you're right that if you look at the great performances in these horror movies, many of those performances, you know, should have been um, Academy Award winning performances when you put them next to whoever won the, like, look at Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Yes. Or, you know, these people where right. it's like, Give me a break. That is that 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 performance blows anything. And her you know, performance got did. shit on forever until like just you know the last what twenty years maybe. Yeah, and and and, and it she, wasn't it first? She, well, yeah. she If if you think about it, with him being Jack Nicholson for the entire movie, I mean that's one of the critiques of the film that I actually buy. Right, like he's. He's fucking crazy looking from the get go. And what we're supposed yeah. to do is go on a journey with a very sane, average right. father who becomes crazy, you know, over the course of this, you know, period of isolation. It's Shelly who makes it work. It's yeah. Shelly who seems like this sort of this this mother who is going along for the ride and she's not really sure about this whole situation. She's sort of passive and she plays it out to be that level of, you know, building hysteria, you know, that that basically makes his performance work because she's reacting so brilliantly yeah. to what he's what he's giving. You know, they always yeah. give the women the hysterical moments, right? And mm -hmm. then those are the ones who really lead performances. I mean, it, it, it goes so based off stereotypes that women are hysterical, right? But, like, then they pull it out of the bag and they end up being, like, that's why we love women in horror so much more than we love men in horror. Well, women in general, in, in general, the movie, and women in general in the movie industry are are um, shit upon yeah. for giving big performances, whereas yeah. men men are rewarded. And I think we as queer men actually gravitate towards these over the top women and value them more earnestly. You know, so people go, "Showgirls is terrible," and it's like we as queer men actually can watch Elizabeth Berkley and genuinely appreciate the insanity that she's sort of offering, right? We yeah. watch we watch Mommy Dearest. And I would argue that fucking Faye Dunaway is an incredible actor who's yeah. giving us a, a fucking gem of a performance. But because they're women, they're, 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 they've crossed the line, they've gone too far, it's too big, it's too much. Meanwhile, you know, um, 
what's his face, you know, who who stars in Scarface or any Al Pacino, Al that's, Pacino that's and Scarface, a camp performance. It's, Let's it's, be honest. it's yeah. insanity or or Anthony Hopkins as Buffalo Bill. I mean, it's ridiculous, but it, it they're rewarded for those performances and yeah. women are shamed for them. Right. So I, I think we rewrite history. We go back. I, I think it's changing a little bit where now you see these these sort of actors with with gravitas women who have, um, you know, uh what's the word respect in the industry doing movies like tony collette you know yeah 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 (laughs) you know so we are seeing a shift a little bit where where it because again these women are are saying no no these movies and these filmmakers are are some of the best storytellers out there and so when a tony collette does uh you know, a horror movie, it confuses, you know, the snobs. They don't <laughs> know what also, to make of it. But also let's bring, like bringing it in, into the realm of, of something that inspired Scream and, and then of course got its own sequels because of Scream. Jamie Lee Curtis left this genre because she was not being recognized as the performer that she was. And now all these years later, we get to watch this woman return to the genre and be celebrated for it. Whereas two decades, three decades ago, she did not want to talk about these movies because they they weren't helping her because of exactly what you're talking about. So I think that it's great. It's great to see this reclamation, to see a movie open with Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, a, a woman in her, what is she 70 now? Probably, I mean, I would yeah. think she's got to be close. Yeah, you should know this. She was 61 when she did Halloween 2018. So whatever the math is there. Okay, well, so she's in her mid 60s, but to open a major film and people are excited to have her return. Like it's about damn time, honestly. I mean, and honestly, the same thing with Scream 5. I mean, Scream, but Sophie Scream, right? Like if Campbell and Courtney Cox, like, and Zach and I have talked about this at length on the podcast. I love the idea of like, someone in their 50s like a woman in her 50s or 60s getting to be the hero like yeah i feel like prior to that you know samrisha geller would always say well i'm too old to go back to buffy and it's like no that's interesting she's like, so wrong me, now because women yeah. in film in general is such a like older women in film is becoming such a big thing now right like you don't have to be I, like we don't, 20. Yo, you don't have to be 20 you know to play a 35 year old right well how about like uh bet <laughs> bet midler doing winifred sanderson again it's there like go. how great is that you know yeah. it's like that's what the fans want we don't want to see some fucking retread of hocus pocus with young trendy no. you know pop stars no give me bet midler she plays a witch let her play the witch it doesn't matter that she's old we don't care we love yeah. Bette Midler. Let her do her right. job. She can still work, you know? It's and like- it's also seeing these people like kind of appreciate these roles that sort of catapulted them, right? Like yeah. getting getting these three back in every Scream movie is like unheard of in any other franchise. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. happen. And we're getting them again for a fifth one. Yeah. However, 25 years later, like that's crazy. And I will say the Drew Barrymore bringing it back to what we're talking about. The she Drew loves Barrymore, this role. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, Drew Barrymore celebrates his role all the time. But the Drew Barrymore of it all, when the fourth one came out, I was like, "Fuck, I'm so nervous. They're gonna kill Sydney and Dale in this one. Like, this is it." And now I have that same anxiety for the new one. Like, I'm uh, like, right. I remember in the fourth one that scene where he does stab her. Dale had never like been, and it was like halfway through. 
And I just was like, oh, this is it. They're gonna kill Gail. And I remember like almost getting like crying because I was just like, no, my favorite <laughs> horror girl, like they can't kill her. And like, they didn't, yeah. but I I still get that anxiety with this series because we've seen so many of them be murdered. So many of the big stars. Um, and well, I they, do. And, and, the, and they know that you have that fear. So they're going to play on it. And I will say, bringing this back to uh, Wes Craven a little bit, uh, as a kid who saw Dream Warriors when it came out and was blown away that they were bringing Nancy back for the third one, because, you know, as much as I like the second one for its own, for my own reasons, um, I really didn't think it was an appropriate sequel to A Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, we wanted Nancy, just like with Season of the Witch, they wanted, you know, they wanted Michael Myers. Well, I wanted Nancy Thompson, you know? And so to find out that she's coming back for part three, you know, Dream Warriors, and then the fact that she gets fucking killed at the end of that movie, you know? And Patricia Arquette is like, holding her in her arms, crying. Like that's Wes Craven telling you like, I'm not following the rules. Like, yeah. you know, he created that story. And I bet it was Wes who said, Nancy must die. Right. And I like, I still resent that. I don't like watching <laughs> that part of the movie. It's so sad, you know? But again, I think that's, you know, that's why these things work. Like we have an emotional connection to them. And I wonder with Drew Barrymore, if, um, Oh, I mean, I, I doubt they'll do it, but I mean, it'd be so fun if they had some sort of way to, you know, have her do a cameo or something in the, the upcoming movie. Anymore. Yeah, like maybe she does a cameo as a different character or something, you know, that would or be she fun. Like, yeah. Or like, oh, they're Drew Barrymore starring in the new Stab movie. They're watching like, the Drew right. Barrymore show on TV. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. there, there we go. Um, what about the killers? Who is Who is killing in this scene? Is it one, the other, or both? What do we, what do we think? I always thought rewatching it that it was both, but then mm -hmm. seeing it like today, I, I watched it, you know, because of a podcast. Um, I was I was thinking, oh, you know what? My memory was that they were uh, showing us that they were, how should I say it? That the killer could move around quickly. Yeah. And then rewatching it, I was like, they don't really do that. You know, it could actually be one person, but my my memory was that like they had foreshadowed that this killer, you know, like when when he's inside the house and you see him behind her, you know, if they had the killer then come out of the bushes or something, it would have right. been like yeah. it kind of, maybe smart, maybe dumb, but like you'd look back on it later and go, oh, it's because there's two of them, you know. Yeah, but they I don't really. Does, I, oh no, I do think they do do that because do when you? they are fucking with her and like asking her which door they're at, I think yeah. they're at both doors. I don't think it mattered oh. which door she picked. I think one of them probably dipped out a little earlier, which would have been, uh, uh, fuck, now Billy. I'm forgetting his name. Billy, he, he, Billy, Billy yes, because he needed an alibi, so he got well, out of there, right? I, 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 I always thought that Stu killed her because mm -hmm. ultimately in the construction of this movie, um, all of Billy's kills are personal. Like yeah. he's, he, it all ha it all ties back to Sydney, whereas Casey doesn't. And we know that Casey is Stu's ex. Yeah. And so it makes sense that he would be the person that killed her. This upcoming film, like, yeah. With so so much anticipation, mm -hmm. you know, what do you think the chances are that we're going to be disappointed? Mm. Is that is am I being a Debbie Downer? I guess no. I, I think in some ways it's because of Halloween Kills. You know, it's like yeah. there there are these sort of like these epic you know exciting things, especially you know with the pandemic and the the kind of the shit world that we're living in. Like you know this screen, this screen movie has a lot of people counting on it to deliver. You know. 
It's also I, I, the first one without West too, right? So like, there people yeah, are yeah. really looking at that. I, w- I will say, Peaches, you are right though. Like, I I even like I, Halloween isn't my favorite franchise, but I was really excited for Halloween Kills. Um, yeah. I had I liked 2018. I had issues with it, but overall, I liked it. Yeah. Um, and so I just kind of thought, well, this will at least be that good. But maybe it'll be better because we're bringing back these characters. But it was like a zillion times worse. So I will say, after I saw that movie, I was like, <laughs> "Oh no!" But what about Scream? Like, yeah. I don't want Scream to do that to me. <laughs> yeah, I, it, I, I have seen. I do love Ready or Not, though. I do have confidence in those guys because I do like like that movie. Maybe I didn't love it as much as some other people did, but I, I definitely loved it and think I could see where the tone translates well to a Scream. Yeah, they're cool filmmakers. I really am looking forward to see what they do. Do you think that comedy from the first four is going to translate over? Because this trailer seems so serious, too. I think the trailer is a misdirect, and it absolutely should be. What do you think is misdirecting about it? I'm I'm super curious. Me and Ian talk about this all the time. What What do you think they're not showing us? Well, I think that the reality is is this is a meta franchise, which in of itself became exactly what it was satirizing right which is tricky uh and i think that at this point if it doesn't enter a a new generation and a fifth sequel knowing that it's supposed to be knowing like we now live in an era where everyone complains that trailers give everything away right so the reality is is i feel like these trailers were cut to be intentionally deceptive uh also knowing these filmmakers and how they work um i feel like what we think we saw is not what we saw and uh that at least is interesting or it could be totally fucking wrong but um i i I think that what i am excited by was the trailers felt very expected and in that feels like okay they're they're messing with us because i agree i think they have to come up with something clever and that's mm-hmm. part of the challenge of, of doing this film. So I I'm I, I think we'll know pretty quickly, <laughs> you know, when, when the movie starts, we're gonna know what direction it's headed. And I think they have about 10 or 15 minutes to wow us. And if they don't, that'll be a bit that'll be the first disappointment, right? Because mm-hmm. to to really honor a sort of a reboot of Scream, you know, it would be a missed opportunity. Now they have they have their work cut out for them right because the sequels had that same challenge and then we have similar franchises that because of scream things like final destination had that same challenge right um so wow what are they going to do i don't know but i do think that the opening is something we're all gonna right well like we're all gonna be a bit disappointed if it if it there isn't something there or maybe it'll be a slow burn and by the end of the movie we'll go hey it didn't need that crazy opening yeah that's true i could i you know i hadn't even thought about that but i could see that um i do keep thinking how four which i do love like four is my second favorite in the series i hate that opening i think that opening is like so stupid um and I remember thinking when I saw it in theaters, like, oh, am I not going to like this movie? But then uh, I loved yeah. it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Does anybody have any, you know, following ending thoughts maybe of of this whole opening? Uh, it's iconic. <laughs> yeah. Zach, you just said whole opening. Whole opening, <laughs> yes. We'll keep it in there. That was intentional. Yeah. Okay. Right. Just wanted uh, to be clear that you said that. Peaches, <laughs> you are a fucking delight, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. 
I see, love having someone see Michael. <laughs> I'm a delight. Well, listen. <laughs> I love anyone who can like get Zach to be like, oh, oh like, well, okay, okay calm down, Ian. She jumped on the word hole. It's not like she wrote the fucking like, network. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, the opening is iconic. Show stopping. Blah blah blah. Insert Lady Gaga meme. Go for it. It is like it, it, it changed the game. It really did. I don't know how much more like it it can be stated in the way that this jumpstart a whole it jumpstarted a whole new era of horror and it began with this scene it is still being referenced in pop culture you know i yeah. just I, I just saw something recently i forget what it was but it was like uh i don't know maybe it was it was more than a halloween costume it was some sort of media i apologize for not remembering but it was clearly a man dressed up in drew barrymore scream drag and yeah. uh you know it, it that that to me says iconic you know when when this many years later people are still dressing up as your character who was on screen for less than 15 minutes you know right yeah, yeah. that's amazing okay well so here's our closing then i guess uh pick somebody that you would put in the opening of the new one to be killed to be killed yeah. maybe they make it whoever's just whoever opens the movie for us and what what are they doing hmm well i guess i mean I would I would respect them killing Sydney because mm -hmm. it would be in the spirit of the original, you know. Um, but I but I also agree with whoever shouted out that that's also expected. So right. maybe maybe you're right, Zach. Maybe they just can't do it because if whatever celebrity or iconic person they put in isn't going to be uh, as interesting as Drew Barrymore because we now expect it, right? So. I mean, there'd be maybe fun people that I would like to see be killed. I mean, it'd be great if, like, they, you know, killed Donald Trump or something in the first 10 minutes of the movie. <laughs> they could and it was actually a snuff film, you know. <laughs> that, that would be fabulous. But, um, you know, that's not going to happen. So I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a tough one. I'm sure, they, I'm sure there were many writers' meetings around this very topic. Oh, yeah. 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 It's also tricky because, like, now with the onus of like, who do I pick to put in the opening scene? It's like, well, I'm picking them just to kill them. And like, now I don't want to pick any actor I like because then the you audience is going to be kill like, them. so, well, I mean, what if it was just the cast of Friends? It's just the whole <laughs> cast of Friends will do that, yeah. right? That'll yeah. be but then I, Court, Courtney emerges victorious because she was on <laughs> Cougar Town, which is one of the greatest television shows of all time. I think I did. I think I said this in one of our recordings, Zach, or maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Zach and I have the same conversation a lot of times because um, we're always thinking about the same shit. Um, but I think I said this before that like, I actually do think the only way I think they could change it and it not be expected is if it is that the movie opens on Sydney or Gale and they don't die. But like, yeah maybe Sydney's with her husband and her husband dies and like, but she gets stabbed, but like, doesn't die. Um, or like with Gail. No, like, that's not, that's. that's <laughs> just don't that. Yeah, that. You're done. just being, you're just being a baby. You know, they, they actually... need to kill Nev Campbell. That would be shocking. And, well, no, and, and I... let's face it. You would be shocked. You're like talking, you're trying to talk us into not killing Nev Campbell. <laughs> yes, you're right. I am. Uh, well, well, hear me out. Hear me out. I think maybe one way too to subvert that we're all expecting a shocking death. Yeah. So yeah. what if the big reveal of the end is someone that we thought was dead isn't? Because there are characters that we have not 
seen physically die on screen. Kirby, for example. Yeah. Ooh, or... I have another twist. Mm. Oh, yeah? Go for it. Hecklina. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Just No, I'm just putting myself in the writer's room. We decide that the beginning shock isn't as important because it's expected. And you can't beat the first one, as Zach right. mentioned. And Ian mentioned, if we do the, the Sydney kill, that's actually kind of expected. So you make the end the shock, and it's Sydney who is the killer. Ooh, get all crazy. I, I had actually thought that Sydney might be the killer of Makes sense. Four She's traumatized. When it came out, but really you thought in four yeah well and then, I mean, and then they delivered one fucking great killer i'll be if honest, she's but. the killer i want full credit for you know you can i want yeah i think the girl we see in the opening of the trailer i don't think she is the opening kill i think or at, at least not the only opening kill right i think amber is a character we're going to see and not just somebody on text i i do i do think I mean, you mentioned Kirby. I, I, and I love Kirby. Like the thing yeah. Scream does is makes these characters that they kill where like, you're like, no, like this is a good character. I want to see them stick around. I do think Kirby as the opening kill would work. Like I do think because she was a beloved character and only in the last one, but was still a fan favorite. Like, right. Like fans talk right. about her all the time. Mm -hmm. I do think that could work. And I would still be upset because I did love her character. And I think her scene was the best scene in that entire movie um, where she's like reading off all the things and she's like, no, I'm right. I saw those fucking movies. And then he's wrong. And, but he kills her. Um, and I think if it's like, we establish just, we don't even need to like show anything. Just like, that's Kirby. We know yeah. it's Kirby. Okay. She's alive because we didn't really see her die. And that is weird that we didn't see her die. Right. Like she's still rolling on the ground. Granted you, in real life, you would die from that. But Dewey has been stabbed plenty of times. Nah, and nah, come out. If you don't see them body bagged and everything, they're not dead, right? All right. Do you guys want to promote yourselves, who you are, where you've been, what you do? Tell us where to find you. <laughs> well, uh, both Michael and I co-host the Midnight Mass podcast, which you can find anywhere you listen to podcasts. And um, I, Peaches Christ, am on uh, social media, and I have a website, peacheschrist.com, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all that shit. Uh, what what date is this coming out? Next week. Okay. Uh, yeah, I am also <laughs> I am also on Twitter, just at my name and Instagram at Michael Verratti. I will tell you that the week of this airing, Peaches and I have also we have dropped our Christmas episode, uh, Christmas with the Cenobites, celebrating Hellraiser with two very special guests from the franchise itself. So when you're nice. done talking to us, at, when you're done listening to us talk about Scream, head over and listen to us talk about Hellraiser. Love that. <laughs> and Zach, where can uh, they find My Bloody Judy on YouTube? YouTube.com slash AZB bonus features. And what about you, Ian? Where can everybody find them on the podcast platforms? They can find it in SlayerFest98's podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And we promote it all on social media at SlayerFestX98. Your voice came back, Ian. By the end, we got you back. It, it keeps You're going good. in now. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for watching. Thank you guys from the Midnight Mass podcast for being here. It's been awesome. And uh, we'll see you all later. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye.